Let's pray together. Father, we bless you and thank you that you have brought all of these voices together in this room, in this moment, because you have bought for yourself a people. And here we are together because you have brought us here. We thank you for your mercy towards us through Christ. And Father, we pray for your mercy even now again as we open your word, that you would open up our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, I read a short article about a man named Joe, who is a Christian and who had come to a point in his life that he was angry with God. And the article describes Joe's situation this way. I want to read to you a little bit. I think the article is written from the perspective of a Christian counselor who had known Joe. But it says this, the, the first 19 years of Joe's life was at the epitome of dysfunction. Then he was saved. It was a fantastic turnaround. He joined a local church and was growing by leaps and bounds as the Lord impassioned him with the excellent gospel adventure. And the church readily embraced him. Joe genuinely loved God. He was experiencing things that were new, wonderful, and radically different than his former manner of life. It was an exciting time. Joe also had a wife and children. After things had become a bit tight, they decided Jenny should take a job to help supplement their income. She found an admin job at a, lo job at a local tax firm. It was perfect, almost. Joe and Jenny were struggling in their marriage, but they figured they, they were no different from anyone else. They chose not to share their marriage problems with their church. Besides, they loved God and God loved them. That seemed to be enough. After nine months into Jenny's new job, she began an affair with one of those tax guys, as Joe would call him later. They started sleeping together, and within two years, Joe and Jenny were divorced. Interestingly, Jenny was awarded the children while Joe's life went into the toilet. He came for counseling. We met over a period of a few weeks, during which time Joe eventually blurted out what he had only dared to think before. I'm mad at God. There, I said it. Joe needed to come to terms with some things about God. His fundamental theology believed that because he trusted Christ for salvation, that God would take care of him. While that is ultimately correct, listen to this part, Joe and God had two different opinions on what taking care of him meant. Have you ever found yourself in the position where you were angry with God? Most people don't just wake up out of nowhere with this conscious contempt for God. Usually this kind of feeling results from experiences like we just read about with Joe. An experience of suffering or maybe some kind of an injustice that has come into your life. Or maybe even both of those things. Maybe your boss calls you into his office out of nowhere and says your position is being eliminated you get a phone call from the doctor and the test result is dismal. You sit down across from your spouse who tells you that she's finished and ready to move on from you. Someone close to you, someone really close to you, maybe even one of your own children, receives a terminal diagnosis. 
You're likely not going to be angry at God when everything is going well for you. You are going to be tempted to anger when things are going badly for you. When you and God have different opinions about the best way for him to care for you. And when you find yourself in that dark place, you have a really grave choice in front of you in terms of how you're going to respond. You might try to cope with it by saying, well, God's not really in control of everything. He's trying his best, and this one just slipped by him. But that won't really work, will it? Because you know what the Bible says, Psalm 115. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Nothing slips by him. He's sovereign over everything. You might respond or try to cope by saying, well, well, maybe his intentions towards me aren't all that good. It's all powerful, but maybe he's just doesn't have good intentions towards me. But that won't work either because you know what God's word says. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose in Romans 8.28. And so this is where you reach your deepest and your most profound emotional and spiritual dilemma because you know that a faithful Christian must affirm God's goodness and sovereignty over your life, but now you've got this thing in your life that seems manifestly evil and for no good purpose. No good purpose except for misery and heartache. And you don't know how you're going to be able to reconcile God's goodness and sovereignty with your own pain. Something's got to give here. And in that moment, the temptation is going to be to let the suffering that you're experiencing, to let that take center stage and to make it the center of the universe and to bend the entire universe to your own suffering. And you will be tempted to do one of two things, either abandon your belief in his goodness or abandon your belief in his sovereign control over your life. And both of those options, whichever you choose, are going to lead you away from the God of the Bible. It's going to lead you away from Jesus, especially if you opt to deny his goodness and to hold God himself in contempt for the ways that he has dealt with you. And that, brothers and sisters, once you've started to hold that contempt in your heart, that is the pathway to falling away from the faith. And that is the pathway that many have chosen. It is a well-worn path. What are we going to do when we are tempted to hold God and his ways in contempt? In many ways, the book of Jonah helps us to answer this question. If you haven't already, open up to the book of Jonah. Because Jonah was a man who was not happy with the way God does things. Jonah sometimes called the prodigal prophet because he was not happy with God. We don't know much about Jonah Except what we read in the book of Jonah, he's only mentioned one other time in the Bible in 2 Kings in chapter 14. If you look at 2, don't look at 2 Kings, but I'll just tell you about it. 2 Kings chapter 14, it says that even though the king of Israel, Jeroboam, was evil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, even though that was the case, God still blessed his people by expanding the boundaries of Israel to what they were under David and Solomon. And so the text says, that this expansion of Israel's territory happened, quote, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. That's the only other reference to Jonah. But we know during the life of Jonah that he witnessed 
firsthand God's merciful, saving hand extended towards God's wayward people. And it turns out that Jonah actually, in this book, is just fine when God does this kind of thing for him and for his people. When God is saving in his purpose towards the Hebrews or towards Jonah himself. But he's not so fine when it's when God acts this way towards wicked Gentiles. And so Jonah becomes like his name, Jonah, son of Amittai. Jonah means dove, which is a symbol for Israel as silly and senseless in Hosea 7.11. But son of Amittai means son of my faithfulness, which means that Jonah will remain the object of God's faithfulness. You know, the Bible says even when we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. But in this book, we're going to see Jonah's faithlessness across these chapters in four different ways. So four chapters, four expressions of faith, faithlessness from Jonah that we're going to witness. We're going to see contempt for God's word, contempt for God's salvation, contempt for God's mercy, and finally contempt for God. So the first thing is contempt for God's word. Look at verse 1 in Jonah 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now notice... That God's word to Jonah is to go to Nineveh and to preach. But Jonah shows contempt for God's word by doing the exact opposite. He goes away from Nineveh and he doesn't preach. Now please note, it's not merely that he's disobeying God's word because twice the text says in verse 3 that Jonah is fleeing from what? He's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. So we need to be clear about something right up here at the front. If you are fleeing from God's word, you aren't just fleeing from a book. You are fleeing from God himself. God makes himself known to us in his word. Our interest in his word is not just an academic interest. It reflects whether or not we want to know him. Husbands, if your wife says to you, you never listen to me, and you respond, I oh, don't worry about it, I love you, I just don't care to listen to you talk, in fact, I often wish you wouldn't talk at all, be available to meet my needs, but otherwise, let's not get too involved in exploring your feelings. Happy Valentine's Day. No. Not a happy Valentine's Day. It's an execrable Valentine's Day, and it will be an execrable marriage. Why? Because your contempt for her words reveal a contempt for her, because her words reveal to you who she is. If you don't want her words, you don't want her. And so it is with Jonah. He defies God's word, and now he finds himself fleeing from the presence of Almighty God himself. But look at verse 4. But the, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners, those are the sailors, 
They were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And it's as if the captain is looking at Jonah and saying, you know, don't you care that we're all about to die up here? You'd rather sleep down here than call on your God like the rest of us are doing? How can you be so blasé about our lives, about your own life? And if Jonah were being honest, he'd have to admit that he's not calling on his God for a reason. He's not calling on his God because he's trying to flee from God. He's not trying to get his attention. Jonah, who was supposed to be preaching to pagans so that they could call on the one true and living God, now the pagans are calling on Jonah to call on the one and true and living God. And Jonah doesn't want to do it. How ironic. And what a contempt for God's word we see in this prophet. And look at verse 7. They said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell to Jonah. And then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. You know, why are these guys so afraid? They're afraid because Jonah's just told them that he serves the God who made the sea and who made the dry land. It's no wonder that the sea is raging against them. It's a sign that Jonah's God who made the sea is raging against them. And that's why they're immediately interested in trying to figure out how do we placate this guy's God? Who is this God? Verse 11, then they said to him, what shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. If you're the sailors and you're, you know, trying to get out of this storm, this idea that Jonah comes up with, doesn't sound, it sounds kind of harebrained. He's mad at us. Are we going to take God's one servant and throw him overboard? Is that supposed to make things better? And so they don't do that right off the bat. It says in verse 13, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. And so they give up on that, and they do something remarkable. Actually, it's, it's miraculous. It says in verse 14, Therefore, they called out to the Lord. Notice there who they call out to. In your Bible, you see all capital letters. They called out to Yahweh. They called out to the covenant God of Israel. O Yahweh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as, as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now think about this. Jonah, when they asked him who his God was, he says he fears the Lord. He fears Yahweh. 
who made the sea and the dry land. But Jonah's a hypocrite. He doesn't fear the Lord. He's fleeing from the Lord. But these pagan sailors, what do they do? Jonah won't cry out to the Lord, so they cry out to the Lord. Jonah won't fear God, but now these pagans do fear the Lord, it says in verse 16. So much so that they offer sacrifices to him and offer vows, apparently, to serve him. So get this. God saves the sailors. Just as they'd hoped, hoped he'd do, and perhaps just as Jonah had feared he would do. And God not only saves the sailors, but he also saves Jonah. Because look at verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We have a whole sermon there in that phrase, three days and three nights. But we'll have to pass on. But think about this. Are they saved because Jonah called on his God? No, they are not. They are saved because they called on Jonah's God. Is Jonah saved because he feared God? I don't think so. He's saved because God was gracious to him and gave to him a kind of a life raft of sorts. A very smelly and dark and probably horrifying life raft. But a life raft nonetheless. Listen, if you despise the word of the Lord like Jonah did, the Lord knows how to discipline those he loves as sons. Hebrews chapter 12 says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it would seem best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And Jonah is being trained by a fish. But it's a fish that's going to lead him to salvation. Brothers and sisters, it's a really foolish thing to think that you can flee from God. If you succeed in fleeing from him, then you were never his. If you are his, then you won't succeed in fleeing from him because he will find you and he will break your contempt for his word and he will teach you righteousness through fatherly discipline. Do not resist the Lord's discipline, but understand that he means it for your good and sanctification. Jonah didn't have to take a whale ride to Nineveh. He just, he, this, this is a path he chose because of disobedience. And it was a direct result of his contempt for God's word. But now we're going to see not only his contempt for God's word, but chapter 2 is contempt for God's salvation. And what I want to do for chapter 2 is I just want to read chapter 2 to you and then make a couple of remarks about it. It says this, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. 
The waters closed in over me to take my life, and the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay, who, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I... With the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Jonah's prayer divides into two parts. From verses 2 to 7, it describes Jonah's distress and it describes his cry to the Lord after being cast into the water. Verses 8 through 9 focus on Jonah's response to God for saving him from the depths. And notice how Jonah concludes in verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah cried out, God answered, and salvation belongs to the Lord. After Jonah confesses that the Lord is the one who brings salvation, that's when the Lord releases Jonah from the fish. And it's as if the lesson has been learned at this point. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But does it really? At least in Jonah's eyes. Has this lesson really been fully learned at this point that salvation belongs to the Lord? Does he really believe that God is free to save whom he is pleased to save? As Jonah praises God for his salvation, did you notice anything missing there? It's not what he said that was wrong, but maybe what he left out that was wrong. Mike Franz was a firefighter for almost 20 years, recently retired. And in his career, he had to rescue countless people from burning buildings at great, great risk to his own life. Can you imagine a scenario in which Mike rushes into a burning home? He finds a father, a mother, and three children, and they're all passed out. He's able to carry all five of them to safety. And as the father regains consciousness, he says to Mike, you know, thank you for saving me. I am so thankful to the city for sending you to save me. What would we have done if I had lost my life? I have been saved because of you. Thank you, Mike. And he goes on and on about how grateful he is that Mike saved him. He never really says anything about his wife and three kids, but he goes on and on about himself. And Mike picks up and he says, you know, uh, I may need to remind him about his family. And so Mike says, yeah, you know, I, it was, I was just doing my job. I'm just glad I was able to get all five of you out of there. And the guy glances at his wife and he looks back at Mike and says, yeah, whatever. But thank you for saving me. It's not that it's wrong to be thankful that he saved him. But there were some other people who got saved in that. Some other precious people who got saved in, in that. It's not wrong that Jonah was crying out to the Lord and thanking God for his salvation. But as the rest of the book unfolds, there are some people not mentioned in this. And that we find out are not really included in jo Jonah's thankfulness in this. And so there is a contempt for God's word 
and a kind of contempt we find out for God's salvation. But look at this contempt for God's mercy as we come into chapter 3. In verse 1 it says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, this is the second time it says that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. And guess what? It's the same word as before. Go and cry out against the city the message I'm going I'm to give to you. It's go to Nineveh and cry out. And this is what Jonah finds. You can try to run from God's word, but it's not going to change. We either change and accommodate ourselves to his word, or we can be crushed by his word. In either case, God's not going to change. We have to change. And so verse 3, Jonah changed. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. I, just, I, don't, I don't have time to get into this, but there's, a, there's such an important little phrase here. It's not in the English translations. I think it's unfortunate. But literally it says, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city to God. Some people think it just means it's like a superlative. I don't think that's what it is. I think he's saying that this was a great city in the sight of God. God is giving regard to this city. Guess who's not giving regard to this city? Jonah. God is giving regard to this city. And it's a great city to God. Three days' journey in breadth. Three days' journey in breadth. Well, it's, the journey actually isn't measured in simply how long it takes to walk from point A to point B. It's measured by the walk and the preaching stops in between point A and point B. And it would have taken some time to preach to 120,000 people. But look at verse 4. He doesn't even get three days' journey in. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Which means Nineveh is going to be destroyed in 40 days. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So the people respond to Jonah's message with repentance. And so does the, the king. Look at verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Now, this is probably actually not the king of Assyria, uh, but the ruler of the city of Nineveh. Nineveh wasn't yet the capital of Assyria at this particular point. But in any case, this king of the city, at least, he repents of his sin, and he commands the rest of the city to do so as well. Look at verse 7. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. The sweeping nature of this repentance among these pagans is stunning. The king is not only calling for a fast for the people, but also for the animals. That means that he not only wants the people to repent, he also wants the animals to do the same. 
This is the, the kind of rudimentary mistake you might expect from a pagan. He doesn't know God's law. He doesn't know that animals aren't moral agents who can't sin or repent. All he knows is that he wants the nation turning to God, and he wants it to be total. Why? Well, in verse 9, he says why. Who knows? God, this God being proclaimed by Jonah, may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The king's intuitions are correct here. Jonah's message was not meant as a final prophecy, but as a warning. <coughs> How do we know that? Because God says that that's the function of these kinds of prophecies. You don't have to turn there, but mark this down. In Jeremiah chapter 18, and verses 7 through 8, God says, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, just like Jonah just declared at Nineveh, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. Jonah knows what God is like, and apparently this king understood or anticipated or hoped for God to be like this. And so Jonah's prophecy had a conditionality built into it. Yes, Nineveh will indeed be destroyed in 40 days if she fails to repent, but she doesn't fail to repent, and so God does what he is wont to do. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they had turned from their evil, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God had mercy on them. They did not deserve it. They barely knew the God that they were calling out to, but they heard the word of the Lord, and guess what? They believed it, and they obeyed it, which is more than we can say for Jonah when he heard the word of the Lord, when it first came to him. So again, the pagans are showing more humility than the man of God himself. The sailors were showing more humility in fearing God than Jonah, and now so were the Ninevites. And so God relents. Now, I labeled this third point contempt for God's mercy. But I fudged the verses a little bit because you actually don't find out about the contempt for the mercy until chapter 4. Jonah's contempt comes out there. This chapter is actually all about God's lavish grace on those who don't deserve it. And believe me, they don't deserve it. The Assyrians were a violent and rapacious people. They were particularly vicious in the way that they treated and conquered their enemies. One of their kings, I looked this up last night, there was a king in, uh, over the Assyrians named Ashurbanipal II. And he participated in many conquests over foreign enemies. I'm going to read to you something Ashurbanipal said about what he did when he conquered. This is a quote. I flayed as many nobles as had rebelled against me and draped their skins over the pile of corpses. Some I spread out within the pile. Some I erected on stakes upon the pile. I flayed many right through my land and draped their skins over the walls. I carried off captives and possessions from them. I cut off the heads of their fighters and built therewith a tower before their city. I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. In strife and conflict, I besieged and conquered the city. I felled 3,000 of their fighting men with the sword. I captured many troops alive. I cut off some of their arms and hands. 
I cut off others, their nose, ears, and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of of the living and one of heads. I hung their heads on trees around the city. These Assyrian kings were vicious. And when they conquered, they tried to humiliate and to intimidate. And they did vicious things. So if you're watching the VeggieTales Jonah with the fish slapping, no. Maybe you feel a little more sympathetic to Jonah's reluctance to go to Nineveh. Who wants wants to go to these people? They don't deserve anything from God. They deserve judgment from God. That's Jonah's opinion. Maybe we could be sympathetic to that. Nevertheless, God said he is going to have mercy to the likes of these. If you're here this morning and there is any doubt in your mind about God's mercy for sinners, let those doubts be erased by how God treated the Ninevites. God didn't give them what they deserved. They deserved judgment. God graciously sent a prophet to them, which means he sent his word to them. God spoke to them. They heard and they became recipients of the grace of the God of Israel. A God they did not know. And they would have been without hope and without God in the world had God not sent them a message. If God can forgive Ninevites, he can forgive you. I don't know what your life has been. I don't know what your sins have been. But God does know what your life has been. He does know what your sins have been. And the Bible says that the God who made the sea and the dry land is a God filled with mercy towards sinners. Are you a sinner? If you are, you need to know that God has sent his own son to die in the place of sinners, to take their punishment upon himself and to raise up after three days his own son so that he can offer eternal life to anyone who will repent and believe in this Jesus, the son of God. Are you a sinner? If you are, God's arm is not too short to reach you. If he can reach Ninevites, vicious Ninevites, he can reach you. You just need to repent and believe in Christ. Jonah may hold God's mercy in contempt. He may hold these Gentiles in contempt. But God doesn't hold them in contempt. He's being merciful towards them. And he can be merciful to you. There's a contempt for God's word. There's a contempt for God's salvation. There's a contempt for God's mercy. And in verse 4, we're going to see that there's a contempt for God. In chapter 4, look at verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. What displeased him? (laughs) That they repented in response to the word of God. It displeased him. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God. God, and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Aha! The truth is finally out. Why didn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh in chapter 1? Why has he been the prodigal prophet all this time? Because Jonah knew what the Assyrians were like and Jonah knew what his God was like. And he knew salvation is from the Lord. And if Jonah were to connect the Ninevites to this saving God by preaching the word to them, he knew that God might have mercy on them. 
And notice the focus of Jonah's disapproval. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. In other words, I knew that, that that's who you are because that's how you treated me. That's how you treat your people. And I like you when you treat me like that, but I hold you in contempt when you treat Ninevites like that. Jonah's problem wasn't just an academic problem with the word of God. Jonah's problem was with God, the God who made the sea and the dry land. This is the kind of God Jonah is and Jonah that, that God is, and Jonah doesn't like it. Verse 3, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better to, for me to die than to live. He sounds like a three-year-old. His heart is so hardened toward God and his mercy and to the Ninevites that he'd rather die than to watch this outcome. And so verse 4, the Lord says to him, do you do well to be angry? Think about this, Jonah. Think this through, Jonah. You feel really justified in your anger, Jonah? Do you do well to be angry at me? That's the big question. Is he right to be angry with God? Is it ever right to be angry with God? Well, God's about to tell him the answer. Look at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat it under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And you get the sense that maybe Jonah is just pulling up a chair to see if, you know, maybe God's judgment will fall down after all. I want to be able to see it from here. So I'm going to sit out here outside the city. Verse 6, now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that, that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Notice again, who is Jonah angry at? Just like in, that's right, in verse 4, <laughs> Jonah is angry at God. God has put the question to him twice, which means everybody in the room, God's asked this question twice. We need to pay attention to this question. Is it right for Jonah to be angry at God and to hold him in his ways in contempt. Verse 10, the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000, not plants, but people who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? If Jonah has pity on a plant, which he didn't make, how can God not have pity on people whom God did make and made them in his very own image? This is a great city to God. 
Jonah wants God to have pity on a plant, but he doesn't want him to have pity on people. And these poor people, they don't know the difference between people and animals. They don't even recognize that they alone are God's image bearers and not the animals. But apparently, does Jonah know much better? He thinks the, the plant's more important than the people. And then the book ends right there. It ends like the parable of the prodigal son, doesn't it? We don't know how the, how the older brother, we don't know how the older brother responds to the father in the parable of the prodigal son. We don't know how Jonah responds to the father at the end of this book. You want to know what Jonah's response is, but we don't get his response. And the question is just left hanging in the air. And it's, it's left there, un, I think, intentionally for you and for me. Is it right for Jonah to be angry at God? The, uh, the answer is obviously no. But the question is, will Jonah come to terms with this? Is it right for you to be angry with God? Guess what? No matter what it is, you might feel angry about at him. The answer is obviously no. But will you come to terms with this? Do you know why it's never right to be angry with God? The reason is because God never does anything wrong, ever. Jonah's angry at God as if he's done something wrong in showing mercy to the Ninevites. And what do we do when we're tempted to be angry? We look at things that come into our lives, and we have a way we think things ought to be, a way that doesn't include pain, a way that doesn't include suffering, a way that includes perhaps our own the, the advancement of our own fortunes and maybe not the advancement of other people that we don't care about. And we see that God's not sorting all this out the way that we like, and so we get mad. And to be angry with God is to say that he has done something less than wise or good towards you. And yet it's never true. God is good all the time. He plans all our pleasures for our good, he plans all our suffering for our good. He is sovereign over all of it. And he works it for our good. Did you notice how many times it says God appointed? God appointed a great fish. God appoints a worm. God appoints a scorching wind. God's sovereign over all this. He's doing all this. And he's doing it all for Jonah's good. And he's doing it all for our good. You say Some people will say, well... What do you mean you can't, it's wrong to be angry with God? God can handle it when I'm angry. That's not what we're talking about. God can handle anything. He can handle anything you throw at him. But that doesn't mean you don't test what's good and evil by what you can throw at him and what he can handle. Because you can throw up righteousness and you can throw up evil. He can handle all of it, but it doesn't make it all good. Of course he can handle it. There's nothing he can't handle. But he doesn't approve of evil. And it doesn't make the evil any less sinful. God is never wrong. If we find ourselves angry at him, it's because our feelings are sinfully out of line with what's real. The only right response to being angry with God is to repent and to ask God to help 
to trust him and his promises. It's never right to be angry with God, but it is always right to tell him when you are. You should never pretend and you should confess, but it's never right to be angry. We're never justified in that. And especially for the reasons Jonah has. And this is the last thing I'll say. Jonah is holding in contempt a people that God intends to save. He apparently thinks that God's salvation is good enough for him, but here's a, a people over here that have just not, they're not up to snuff for Jonah. Maybe there was some ethnic hostility here. Maybe it was a geopolitical hostility because he knew the threat that the Assyrians were to the Jews. But it was the salvation, the salvation that comes from the Lord is good enough for him and his people, but it's not good enough for those people. You can do good to us, but you can't bring these other people in. And yet God is saying to him, well, that's the kind of God I am. It was never my intent just to bless the Jews. It was always my intent, Jonah, read the covenant, to bless the nations through the Jews. That was my intent. Jonah says, I don't like that kind of God. You know what this book does for us? It does a number of things for us. It removes our contempt for God, it should, but it also challenges our contempt for other people that we don't think God ought to be being gracious to and that we don't want to become a part of us. Because there's always a temptation in human sinful hearts to look at certain people and say, they don't belong here, they don't belong among us. And are we really different from Jonah when we have that kind of contempt for other people, either not like us because they're from a different ethnic background, a different economic background, whatever. This book is challenging that contempt and saying, if you don't like it when God extends mercy to them and brings them into the people of God, then you don't like God because that's the kind of God that he is. Is it okay to be angry with God? No. It's always right to tell him when you are. Father, I pray that you would use this word to make us more like you and not like the prodigal prophet. Help us to love the things that you love and to hate the things that you hate. Give us a heart for the nations and to love the kind of God that you are and not to try to form you into the kind of God that we think you ought to be. Help us to accommodate ourselves to your word so that we won't be crushed by it in the end. Help us, Father. Have mercy on us, Father. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.